Hello, and thank you for joining us today on Workforce Institute Radio. I'm Joyce Maroney, Executive Director of the Workforce Institute at Kronos, and today we're continuing the series of podcasts I'm hosting on key ideas from our most recently published book, which is Being Present, a Practical Guide for Transforming the Employee Experience of Your Frontline Workforce. Our book is a practical guide comprised of chapters contributed by our fabulous Board of Advisors on how to transform the employee experience of your frontline workforce with a special focus on jobs that require the employee to be physically present to do their job. So think about a cashier at a store, a home health care worker, or the barista at your favorite coffee shop. My guest today is John Fraze. John is an author, speaker, thought leader, and senior managing director at Ankara Consulting Group, where he works with clients to deliver innovative solutions for labor and operations strategy. John has a keen interest in the democratization of information, as he believes that workers with more access to information will not only be more engaged with their work, but will be enabled to make more significant contributions in their workplace as well. John's wonderful chapter in our book is entitled The Transformative Power of Access to Information. In it, he makes the case that organizations that make more job-relevant data available to their workers are the better for it. So, John, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here remotely online, (laughs) as we all are right now. And and I should note, as we're recording this, um, you know, a good chunk of the world, including those people who are normally uh, on the front lines of their workplaces, are in some form of stay at home or or quarantine. Um, So we we are going to talk a little bit about that today, too, um, because people's appetite for information um, about the world and about their workplaces has never been higher, I think. Um, But let's start, John, with um, if you could tell our audience a bit about yourself and why you were interested in contributing this particular topic to this book. Yeah, and again, thanks for having me. And I, I think it's particularly interesting um, that the, the the title of the book, Being Present, has become more and more ironic as we've gone through this process, but it's also become more and more serious as we look at the workers that have to be present, that have to be on the front lines. And we're working with a lot of those major consumer packaged goods companies, some of the pharma companies, where the employees are desperately needed to be present during the crisis. So for me, before all of this, um, I was um, and have been for over 20 years obsessed with the employee, with the worker, particularly the hourly employee, the one that is is actually doing the work on the front lines, whether it's manufacturing or mining or oil and gas or call centers or service, whatever it might be. So when I heard about the book, I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk about what can make them successful, what can unlock the potential of those people. I have been doing this for over 20 years. Again, my specific focus has been the hourly employee. So I look at shift workers mostly, people that don't work a traditional nine to five uh, Monday through Friday. So John, tell us a bit about the focus of your chapter in the book and you know what are what are some of the key takeaways that you would hope people would absorb from reading your chapter so the chapter again was titled the transformative power of access to information and for me and this has been an obsession of mine for a long time is is understanding what unlocks the power of of the individual at work 
Um, sometimes it's, it's training. Sometimes it's having the right tools. Um, as many of those challenges have been solved or have improved, employees are facing another challenge, which is a lack of access to information so that they can make better decisions faster. And so I explore in this chapter how access to information transforms your ability to be successful and make an impact at work. And then all of the other derivatives that come from that, including things like feeling more engaged, wanting to stay at that job because every day it's it's still important to get paid. But there's so many other currencies that you're getting paid with, like you made an improvement or you made an impact that, that changed the 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 power of the company. And those things are really important. And again, if you don't have the right information, you can't make those better decisions faster. And so I think it's really a, a pivotal story around one thing. Right. And it's empowering people through giving them the right information. So, John, what do you think are, um, you know, what kinds of information do you think that companies tend to withhold that you believe in, and why? Uh, and, and how do you believe you get past that? So the, the <laughs> companies are very protective of information, some of it for a good reason. Uh, things like financials. Um, that are not um, always relevant to the job somebody's doing. Um, but but a, a good example of, of not sharing information would be in a manufacturing facility um, where an employee is focused on one area of a process manufacturing operation, and they only see what's right in front of them. And they believe, let's say, that if they turn a certain knob, their part of the process will work faster. And for them, they see that as a really good thing. What they don't see is downstream from that process, all the other things that are negatively impacted based on more product hitting other parts of the supply chain um, that can't handle that pace. But that's true in anything. It might be in a call center where somebody says, you know, I'm handling these calls really well by giving these people this information. When it turns out that same information um, is perceived differently by the customer and creates negative behaviors that hurt both the customer and the company. It's it's the isolation of the employee without access that drives a lot of unintended consequences. Yeah, I agree. I, I think about um, you know when I was about probably midway through my uh, my career, I had the opportunity to be what was essentially a chief of staff position to a senior executive at IBM. And, um, you know, I, I had had a variety of, of jobs uh, at the company and, and, you know, felt like I had a reasonable working knowledge. But in that particular job, I had access to almost all of the information that this senior executive had. And it was a real revelation to me that the, the power of the position wasn't as much about uh, the authority that the person had. It was the access to information. It was the ability to stand at the top of the hill, if you will, and see that, you know, well, what lay beyond uh, the valley, because you could see those interconnections and those impacts that often when you're working in your particular silo, you just, you know, you can labor away trying to do the best possible thing. But if you don't know how all of the gears turn and, and uh, um, inter, interplay with each other, it's 
it, you can you can really make terrible decisions uh, because you just don't have the full insight. Yeah, and so by giving them access to information, not only can you make them more powerful, but it's so invigorating for the people that have it to say, wow, I really understand what's going on so I can engage in this process and do the right thing. There's nothing, we, we see two sides of this, right? One is employees that have unlimited access to information, but they're not empowered to actually make the decisions. So we're going to tell you about everything that's going on, but then we're going to lock you down so you can't do anything about it. That's where your best employees completely disappear, right? They say, I, I'm going to go somewhere else. This is so frustrating to know the answer but not be able to act on it. And then the other one is to engage employees by saying, you know, we're going to give you unlimited decision making, but we're not going to give you access to information, in which case they can make a lot of really dangerous, bad decisions. There's a balance there, and some people call it a frontier chart, but there's a, there's a balance between access and empowerment. And when you get the right balance of those two things, a lot of magical things happen. So if you think about some of those key lessons in your chapter, how would you say that following the advice in the chapter would help a leader and or their organization to be more successful? So let me give you an example, because I, I focus so much on hourly employees that sometimes I miss the leadership impact. Recently, that was not the case. I was working with a company um, in the southeast that's a manufacturer of a paper product. And I'm sitting in a meeting with a bunch of hourly employees and I'm talking to them about what is stopping them from feeling engaged and making an impact in the company. And they listed a whole bunch of the typical things. But in the end, someone said, you know, we were told by our supervisor that all of our problems better not make it to the front office. In other words, don't complain to the front office because then that supervisor is going to get in trouble. That kind of culture of blocking access to information doesn't just hurt the hourly employee or the supervisor. It hurts the entire organization. And it turned out the things that no one wanted the front office to find out about were things that the front office, the plant manager, the head of HR desperately needed to know so they could make the improvements to the manufacturing process to make everybody's life better. So sometimes this lack of access isn't just an issue for the hourly employee. There's a lot of challenges for leadership when they can't get that feedback loop coming back to them to say, hey, these three pieces of equipment are affecting 30 other pieces of equipment and stopping us from being effective. Can we get the investment to make these better, to make everything else better? Um, instead, it's please don't complain. Just do the best you can. And that doesn't help anybody. Yeah, it's interesting because that, you know, that attitude either either way is um, it's evidence of a lack of trust right and if there isn't trust there isn't going to be a dialogue and you know you and I both know Aaron Ain who's the CEO of, of Kronos and and um, you know he talks in the book he wrote a couple of years ago about trust being fundamental to everything else that, that goes on in an organization. And I think that that's, that's where this, you know, lack of access to information comes from that, that people are afraid. Um, they don't, they don't trust that people will behave responsibly if they're given more information. But at the same time, you know, as you say, the head of HR or the plant manager want the information from uh, their colleagues, 
But, you know, when people are putting out surveys or, you know, doing whatever device they might be doing to try and get that information, if people don't trust that the right things are going to be done with the information or that something will be done with the information, you're not going to get that insight. You know, the, 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 the bottoms up insight is just not going to be there. And, and if you're, let's say, the manufacturer of toilet paper, we need you now more than ever, which is the case yeah. for the company. Um, and so the, the, I, I agree with you on trust. And I, I think that the story is the fear of something being punitive instead of being additive. Right. It's it, this idea that I'm going to get in trouble if people find out what's happening when people are really working hard to try and get it done. It, that's a leadership problem and that's a communication problem. And I know Aaron gets tired of hearing me say this, but every time I'm in Lowell and I see Aaron, I come over. I'm, we're not hugging these days, but I say your book on your chapter on trust is the best chapter in the whole book. And I love the whole book. And I know you can read it chapter by chapter. You don't need to follow along in a certain sequence, but that is the greatest chapter in the book, in my opinion. And he says, how could you spend so much time in the interview process gaining trust, believing the person's right for your culture and then hire them. And then right after that, say, okay, now you now have to, now you have to earn my trust. That is completely counterintuitive. That's why we yeah. hired you because we trust you. Why are we making you start from scratch? And it really hurts the performance of the business when there's no trust. I mean, it's, it's devastating. And I'll avoid yeah. politics for this podcast, but the trust story on all sides of the current crisis is creating uh, a lot of problems, not just in, in how our co country feels, but the supply chain. Right? We don't we don't know what's in the supply chain. Right. Right. No. And I, I think that the other thing, another thing that's happening related to trust right now is you've got a lot of organizations have been forced into supporting work from home for people who can do their jobs um, from home. Um, and in a lot of cultures that, you know, that that hasn't been the case because of uh, whether it's that people don't believe that the jobs can be done from home or, or I think in many cases that they don't trust that the jobs uh, can be done from home. And I know, you know, I have a friend who works on a large organization in Boston that has not historically supported um, work from home in a very um, significant way. And these are, you know, professional uh, people um, really wanting to do a good job. And they are now required to fill out a timesheet every day to explain what they did each hour of the day. And... Needless to say, the employees are taken aback would be a mild way to put right. it when, you know, we're, right. we're in the middle of a crisis. People are scrambling to do the best they can and keep the wheels running. If you don't have this mutual trust with employees, you're going to end up missing opportunities, whether, you know, whether it's getting information and, and innovation ideas from employees or whether it's the, ability to reassure employees, especially during a time like the one we're in now, there's there's a big difference in the messages that are coming down from CEOs and senior leadership. Um, if the trust is already there, then if employees are accustomed to perhaps, you know, thinking about those communications as 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 not sincere. Um, and I think that's another, you know, that's another significant 
piece of of advice for um, people when we're in situations like this now is that employees want to hear from the leadership. They want they know that nobody's got a crystal ball right now, but they want to hear what is the leadership doing to prepare the organization to return. You know, one one thing that is driving me insane. Well, there's a lot of things driving me insane aside from my children. Um, one is that um, everybody wants to talk about, you know, here are the appropriate things to do when working from home. And it's completely tone deaf to the fact that our children are out of school. We're doing the best we can. And the idea that you're going to lock your office door and make sure that no children ever come in when you're working is insane. But it's not just insane. It's completely insensitive. And again, if you look at all of the information around the current crisis, instead of just how to be productive in a vacuum, that's an issue, right? We need to think about this in broader human terms, which is really, really hard for people to do. Yeah, I, I completely agree. John, is there a success story you've experienced, uh, or there's probably more than one, but you've been at this for 20 years, but can you, can you reflect on a particular story about helping an organization, you know, get their heads wrapped around the democratization of information and uh, and how that helped them. Yeah, so we do have a lot of examples. And just generally, what's been fascinating for me is doing the analysis and the strategy for a firm that does not have real-time data analytics to look at both human and machine or operational behavior, depending on whatever industry you're in. Um, and they believe the strategy, they understand it, but they can't actually achieve the results. So we've got a manufacturer of lawnmowers, lawn maintenance work that, um, that believed everything, but for the first three months could not actually get the improvements. They knew where the problems were, but they couldn't see it in real time. And it took real-time analytics for their people to get the buy-in. The management team believed it, but the individual employees couldn't see the problems. So they couldn't actually drive the solutions emotionally. They couldn't get behind it. Um, but a, a really basic, clear one with lots of detail um, is from a client of ours uh, that said, listen, we know we're overstaffed, um, but we don't know where really um, and we did the analysis and we actually used um, Kronos Analytics for this. This was several years ago. Um, and we said, listen, you're overstaffed by 23% on Fridays. Um, that's the only day where you have significant overstaffing. And the, the manager of this operation said, the lead, the general manager said, we're overstaffed heavily on Fridays because we know we have large amounts of absenteeism on Fridays. I've been in this business for 30 years, not at this company, but a lot of different companies globally. And I know people call off dramatically more on Fridays than any other day. And it took us to, to build dashboards for this guy to show him that actually the amount of absenteeism on Fridays in this location was the same as every other day of the week. It wasn't the traditional bathtub curve where Mondays and Fridays had a big problem. And because everybody was showing up for work, it actually meant that he was overstaffed significantly. And so sometimes our, the preconceived notions we have about employee behavior need to be broken with facts and facts that we get served up to us regularly. And by just creating this dashboard, um, this person was able to save $2.8 million on an annualized basis. And now it's been a couple of years. So we say year over year. Um, 
not because of some amazing strategy. It was just by sharing the truth and, and having him understand that employee behavior was different than the preconceived notion. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is I'm going to guess that those kind of preconceived notions are common in a lot of different businesses. I mean, I know for sure they are in retail. We've done a fair amount of, re- of research in retail about scheduling practices and people's beliefs about, you know, when they need extra staff. But when you think across all the, the clients that you've worked with, what are other common challenges that, that people face when they might try to implement your advice to make information more transparent? And, and what do you tell people that helps them get over those hurdles? So the, the challenge is most of our clients are often, I hate to say this, we love our clients, um, they're waiting for a crisis before they engage in this kind of a, a journey. And, you know, things are okay. We're getting by. Things are just okay. Um, and so the, the key for us is to create a business case for why this matters. There are so many competing things going on in the world. Um, and the reality is that most management teams want to do everything they can before they have to actually talk to their employees. So the challenge is let's buy more equipment. Let's get more technology. Let's do everything else we need to do before we actually engage the workforce, serve up the information um, and get them empowered, because that seems like an emotional kind of hard thing to do compared to just throwing money at a challenge. Um, so build the business case. That's really, really important. Um, and, and take the time to do it, uh, I think, thoughtfully instead of just some high level numbers. Um, and assess, and we do this a lot for our clients, is we assess the information that the, every employee has and the information they don't have, and we model out how would their behavior and performance change if we told them the truth about the things that mattered specifically to their job function. And when you start looking at those gaps, it's a, fa- it's a fascinating story about money that just is left on the table and wasted every day. So the return on this kind of behavior, um, I think, drives a lot of uh, – of action. Yeah, it sounds too like, you know, part of the um, the formula here, if you will, is, you know, being ready to, like, listen to the objections right up front, you know, have the difficult conversations about, you know, why do you believe certain things? Why do you not perhaps even believe the, the data that's right in front of you? What bad thing are you are you concerned is going to happen, uh, you know, if we make these changes. And I, I feel like, you know, I've also had a, a long career of of working with with customers and helping customers deploy new technology solutions or new service solutions. And it's it's really, I think, when when people want to just power through and deploy the plan that's in the PowerPoint presentation, and not really sit down and hear from the people who will have to operate within that new framework, why they think it can't work. If you if you have those, you know, if you duke out those conflicts, uh, you know, uh, early, early in the planning, instead of saying, well, we're just going to we're going to build this thing, we're going to put it out there and then, you know, they'll they'll have to do it. And that's first off, of course, not a very trust building approach. But I still feel like a lot of organizations 
operate that way as opposed to like have it out at the beginning so you understand the emotional obstacles um, to getting things done. They aren't always fact-based, but they can really um, mess up your 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 change project, um, even if you know based on people's beliefs. That's right, and and you bring up the point of reliability, which is interesting because access to information is very powerful as long as people believe it's reliable, and then again they're they're empowered to make changes based on the information they have. There's lots of information out there, and and I think it's really important to understand that if you don't give reliable factual information to your employees, it creates a vacuum. And that vacuum is where they create their own information. And that information is typically overwhelmingly negative and damaging to your organization. So the the deliberate act of pushing facts out to your employees all the time is critical, not just because you want to do the right thing, but because if you don't, some very bad things are going to happen. So that actually would be an excellent answer to my next question for you, which is, are there any parting thoughts that you would like to leave our audience with, particularly as we sit here in the middle of a global pandemic? So a couple things. Number one is um, Ankara has a cultural assessment called Dialogue, somehow spelled D-I-I, Dialogue. Um, I didn't make up the name. Uh, but it's it's an incredible diagnostic that measures culture. And one of the questions on that diagnostic is, are decisions made higher up than they need to be? And four out of five respondents tell us, yes, decisions are made higher up than they need to be. And it, it's, it's really got me thinking a lot, and it's for a couple of years now, it had me thinking about, why is that? And why are decisions made higher up? And if the people doing the work can't make the decisions, what's going on? And I've come to kind of a, a circular reference conclusion, which is if we don't give employees access to information in a useful format that's reliable, of course we shouldn't allow them to make decisions. We should have somebody higher up make those decisions who has that access. But if we just gave them access, they could make better decisions faster and drive performance faster. But Again, it's that circular reference. Don't give them the information. So, of course, we cannot let them make decisions. That's a problem. And on the pandemic side, and we're very careful about what we say about the pandemic because the reality is there's a lot of unknowns here. Um, and the unknowns are, are, are frankly what I care about. Um, it's And we, we've talked a lot in, inside of um, my groups of friends and colleagues about the denominator. And the denominator in this case is the total amount of people that are sick or have been sick um, with coronavirus or COVID-19. And because that number is unknown due to a lack of testing, we can't understand what the mortality rate is for this pandemic. And that is a huge issue when we look at managing populations and understanding how to contain this. We don't know how deadly this is because we don't have access to reliable information to give us the denominator, the total number of infected both now and before. And, and that creates fear. It creates chaos. It creates different decision-making processes, which may not be optimal. Um, but again, a lack of information drives a lot of problems. So on that, I, I will close. Um, and I really appreciate the time, Joyce. It's always a pleasure. 
Well, thank you, John, so much for taking the time to be here today. I know you are, uh, you know, at home with your family and, and, um, you know, working through all of the same, um, you know, logistical and, and emotional challenges the rest of us are. Uh, so thanks so much for taking a little time to share your expertise. Um, to those of you who are listening, listening, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you can join the conversation yourself by commenting at workforceinstitute.org. And until next time, um, please stay safe, stay, stay well, and thank you so much for listening.